Fantastic. Evening, everyone. Really good to see you. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Philip, part of the team here. Uh, welcome to you if you're watching online uh, in the internet. It's great to see you here. Now, as um, Alexia said, this is the final part of our series, How to Survive the End of the World. And uh, we have been looking at the kind of crazy world in which we live. And I'm not just talking about political instability and the craziness that's happening in Downing Street and uh, across our country's kind of governing classes. I'm talking about economic crisis, climate crisis, war in Europe, uh, mental health issues on the rise. And we've been looking at how do we navigate this? How do we survive what feels like the end of the world as we know it? And uh, over the last four weeks, we started off four weeks ago with a bit of an introduction to this idea of living in a world of trouble is something that the Bible says is normal and to be expected. But in the last three sessions, we looked at ways of coping. And so we looked at the idea of having a, a vision for something that's bigger than yourself. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom, all these things will be added. Then we talked about having depth. Building a secret devotional life where the, the, um, no matter what's happening on the surface, you've got a kind of a, a profound depth, a secret life, um, a, an inner spiritual core. And then we talked about having foundations. So you build your life on a foundation that's firm, that is stormproof, that when things come against you, you can withstand. And so those are really absolutely true and vital things that we need to grab a hold of. But what I wanted to do today is I wanted to kind of give a little bit of a bonus episode. In one sense, that thing about a bigger vision, a deeper life, foundations on Jesus, that's kind of the heart of what we want to do. But I thought, you know what, it would be really helpful if we could just have a little bit of a, a kind of a left field type of preach, something that is a little bit out of the ordinary. So this is your warning. What I'm about to do with you is going to be a little bit different to what we normally do. So if you're new, if you're watching for the first time, this is going to be a little bit off the beaten track for us. But I wanted to kind of explore some stuff because actually when I started off with this um, key verse from Jesus, from the book of John, uh, it, it says this. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Now, we had that at the beginning, and that's been a kind of the signature verse. But I feel like I didn't really do it justice, because I feel like I didn't really tell you the whole picture. I focused on the fact that Jesus said, you will have trouble. In the world, you will have trouble. But I, I, I don't know, sometimes I feel like, it's not like I want to protect you from stuff or that you can't hear this. But I just feel like sometimes I have to give it to you a little bit at a time. Because actually Jesus said more than that. And when Jesus says, I have told you these things, it's really key to understand what these things are. Because Jesus didn't just say, expect trouble in life. He didn't just say, expect trouble and difficulty and challenge and storms in the world. He actually said, if you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, expect more trouble. Everyone say, hoo-ha. In other words, as bad as it is right now, if you're a Christian, the chances are you can have an even worse time because of what Jesus said. Okay, so let's look at a few things that Jesus said. I told you I was trying to protect you, but it's time for you to be brought into the reality of this. So Jesus says, 
uh, chapter ahead. He said, all these I have told you so that you will not fall away because people can lose their faith. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. And then he says, I have told you these things. Next slide. So that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. The amazing thing about Jesus is that not only did he foretell his own death, he foretold the death of his followers. Not only did he say, I'm going to be killed, I'm gonna be sacrificed, I'm gonna be murdered, but he said, you as my followers, you're gonna be killed, you're gonna be sacrificed, you're going to be murdered. In this world, you will know trouble. And I'm telling you this ahead of time. He says, this is the deal. I am going to give you peace. I've given you fair warning, but I will give you peace. It's a peace that passes understanding. Jesus says, I can give you peace. That's my side of the bargain. But he says, your part of the deal is you have to take heart. I'll give you peace, but you have got to take heart. What does take heart mean? It means to be strengthened. It means to be encouraged. It means to stand up with boldness. So Jesus says, in me you will have peace, but I need you to have a little bit of courage to get through the challenges of living for Jesus day to day. It takes courage. And if you're not uh, sure about faith or if you're finding your way a little bit back into faith or you're here watching because you're curious about faith, you need to know straight up, front and center, living for Jesus is a high risk occupation and it actually takes courage. It's not an easy thing. We're not talking about some kind of nice hippie therapy here. We're talking about a radical lifestyle that will clash with the prevailing culture and will get you into all kinds of trouble. But Jesus says, I'll give you peace, you take heart, you be encouraged. So Jesus tells the disciples he's going to be killed and he explains about what that's going to do them. They're going to be scattered, they're going to be distressed. But then he says, beyond that, you're going to be uh, in the firing line. You're going to be killed. You're gonna be put out of the synagogue. To be put out of the synagogue means to be excommunicated from the whole Jewish faith. You become a non-person. People that you grew up with your whole life, they can no longer talk to you. They can no longer have you in their presence. They can't uh, have you work for them. They can't buy your goods or services. You are totally uh, a non-person. You are cast out of the community. It's like the end of the world. And actually this is what happened with the disciples because Jesus said this is what's gonna happen. A few weeks later after this, this is exactly what happened. The disciples were pulled up in front of the religious ruling council, the Sanhedrin, and they were commanded strictly not to talk about Jesus. And then they did it and then were brought back in again. This is what uh, Acts says. It says, the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest, the absolute total authority, the Ayatollah. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, 
We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. We are witnesses of these things. This is what I want to get in on us today. So today we're going to do a little bit of a, a kind of an overview of the history of the early church. Because the way that they were able to respond and the way that they were able to cope with things helps us as we follow in their footsteps, as we're part of that long line, to know how to handle the difficulties, the vicissitudes of modern life and the challenges and the persecutions that we may face. And they were able to embody that verse, that, that whole uh, encouragement of Jesus. When Jesus said, I will give you peace. And so they're in these situations where they're brought in front of people that they have revered their whole lives for generations. And yet they have to, uh, they have to challenge them and disobey them. And the weird and interesting thing is that the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, the, the priests, they say, what we're getting at you for is that you are talking to people and you're saying that we were responsible for crucifying Jesus. You're making us guilty of his blood. That was their beef. And Paul says, uh, Peter rather, he says with the apostles, he said, actually, that's not the issue here. The issue is not Jesus being killed on the cross. The issue is God raised him from the dead. When he said, I have overcome the world, he was speaking not only about his teaching overcoming the world, not only about his light overcoming the darkness, but him physically, spiritually overcoming death itself, rising from the dead. And they said, we're witnesses. We've seen that. We have to obey God no matter how much it costs us, no matter how difficult it is. The whole point of being a Christian, the whole point of being a follower of Jesus is not about having a good teaching or a good feeling or a good community or a good way of life. All those things are great. The thing that we do our lives and what we base our faith upon is Jesus has overcome the world. He has risen from the dead. And because I'm convinced that he's risen from the dead, I can have courage. When Jesus says, I'll give you peace, you've got to get your own courage. He says, but the basis on which you get courage is that I have overcome the world. I have risen from the dead. And so these early believers, these disciples, they said, we can do this. We can, we can be completely out on a limb because Jesus has overcome the world. What I want to do is I want to give us a little bit of a, a little look at history. And we're going to look at three characters. Now here's a little, you can play uh, history bingo. If you know one of these characters, you can feel good. If you know two of these characters, you can feel amazing. If you know three of these characters, you're preaching next week. So this is the deal. We're going to look at these three characters. And these uh, all had front seat views of what the early believers were doing. These men and women who were convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. So no matter how difficult it gets, no matter how hard it is, they were able to go through because they were convinced that they were witnesses that Jesus had risen from the dead. The first person that we're going to focus in on is a guy called Gamaliel. Everyone say Gamaliel. Why Gamaliel? Well, because Gamaliel was actually in the room. He was the guy that was in the room when the disciples really gave that incredible thing where they, they, they stood up to the high priest himself. 
Gamaliel was one of the Sanhedrin. He was one of the most famous clerics of the time. He was incredibly respected. And he heard what the disciples had to say and he had this incredible, brilliant piece of advice for everyone to take a hold of. It says this, when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. That's the the Sanhedrin. They wanted to put the disciples to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put aside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Feudus appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. This is really the crux. Again, if you're looking at Christianity, if you're thinking about does this stuff make sense, you might have come into this meeting or you might be watching online and you see, you know, everyone's getting very emotional. They're getting very kind of touchy feeling. They've got their hands in the air. What's going on? Is it some kind of group think? Is it some kind of group therapy? Uh, is it emotional manipulation? What, what is this stuff? Or is it just a nice kind of thing? You, you believe something about being good and, and doing good to people and loving everyone and you find this nice community and, and is that enough? Let me tell you this. Following Jesus is based on a historical event that God himself entered human history, that God himself became a human being in the form of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that he lived a perfect life to show us what human, human beings are supposed to look like. And then he died willingly a sacrificial death to take upon himself all the worst that the world can throw upon us. All the, the evil consequences, all the punishment and, and the, the kind of takes it upon himself and then he beats that. He beats the power of sickness and sin and death. He beats the power of cancer and divorce and depression. He beats all the things. He overcomes the world. Now, if that is true, you'll expect something amazing to happen. But what Gamaliel was saying was this. He was saying, people are always standing up saying that they're somebody or other. Do you think that Jesus was the only person that proclaimed themselves as Messiah in those days? There were loads of them. They were like buses coming two at a time. There was Feudus, there was Judas, the Galilean. There was all these different people, the the Maccabean revolt. Uh, These guys would stand up and the same thing happened again. If it's based on human effort, if it's based on a charismatic individual, if it's based on a compelling teaching, as soon as the founder is killed, everyone is scattered. It's over, it doesn't last, it cannot possibly last. Gamaliel is saying, look, we have a kind of theocratic system where the the priests are in charge. 
And if the priests are in charge and they say this is what is the, um, the doctrine, orthodoxy, if you go against that, we cast you out of the synagogue. We excommunicate you. We make you a non-person. Nobody can stand up to that, let alone a few straggly members of someone that has been killed. But he says, look, this is, this is a really interesting test. L- let's consider this. If we leave these people alone, if it's just a human thing, there's no way that this is going to survive. But if God is real, and if God has moved in Jesus Christ, and if God has raised Jesus from the dead, like he says he is, this thing will be an unstoppable force. You won't be able to stop it. You won't be able to slow it down. You can kill them. You can imprison them. You can persecute them. You can outlaw them. You won't be able to stop it because against all the odds, if it's from God, it will find a way. It will do itself. And it's this incredible thing. And you see what happens. We move out of the Bible. We move into history. And so 30 years later, 3,000 miles away, you ask yourself the question, what happened with those guys? What happened to those Christians? What happened to that movement? Well, we're going to find out. And actually, again, if you're not a believer, this is so, so powerful. Because here, we don't need the Bible to bolster the claim of the followers of Jesus. We have history. In fact, we have one of the most outstanding, memorable, shocking, earth-shattering events in all of ancient history. AD 64, it's the great fire of Rome. I've got a little fire dynamic yeah because I thought this is all a little bit dry and uh, it's not like our normal talks about how to do life well Uh, so I thought you know put in a little bit of graphics that'll win the crowd yeah AD 64 Rome the capital of the greatest empire the world has ever seen is up in flames and it is devastated Nero is the emperor and he is the prime suspect for starting the fire. Everyone knows that Nero didn't like the architecture. Everyone knows that Rome was something that he wanted to remodel more along his image. And so they are convinced that Nero has done this thing because he's, he's crazy and he's slept with his mother and he's just a weird guy. Um, and so they start um, really murmuring against Nero. Now, there's a, uh, a famous historian, one of the great historians of the Roman Empire. His name is Publius Cornelius Tacitus. He's a bit of a guy, he's quite buff, he's got a statue. And so Tacitus, he's a politician, he's a historian, he's a senator, and uh, he literally lives through the great fire of Rome. And he sees what Nero does. And Nero's thing is, he tries to find scapegoats. He says, hey, I didn't start the fire, those guys did. And this is literally from the annals of Tacitus. He says this, Therefore, to scotch the rumor, the rumor that he'd started the fire, Nero substituted as culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty a class of men loathed for their vices. Vices like they didn't serve the emperor, they were rebellious, they allowed their women to have full rights, they uh, probably were cannibals, they did this communion thing, they were loathed by the people whom the crowd styled Christians, it's a nickname. Christus, the founder of the name, uh, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilatus. 
And the pernicious superstition was checked for a moment, only to break out once more. Not merely in Judea, the home of the disease, but in the capital itself, where all things horrible and shameful in the world collect and find a vogue. First then, the confessed members of the sect were arrested. Next, on their disclosures, vast numbers were convicted, not so much on the count of arson as for hatred of the human race. And derision accompanied their end. They were covered with wild beast skins and torn to death by dogs, or they were fastened to crosses. And when daylight failed, were burnt to serve as lamps by night. Nero had offered his gardens for the spectacle and gave an exhibition in his circus, mixing with the crowd in the habit of a charioteer or mounted on his cart. I don't know what that means. Hence, in spite of the guilt which had earned the most exemplary punishment, there arose a sentiment of pity due to the impression that they were being sacrificed not for the welfare of the state, but to the ferocity of a single man. This is so powerful. Because what he is saying is this. We know it's a matter of historical record. Under the uh, oversight of Pontius Pilatus, Pontius Pilate, that this man, Christus, Jesus Christ, was crucified. That's historical record. The Romans know it. It's part of the, the, the record that they have kept. They're aware of it. And he says, but this pernicious rumor, these loathsome people with their vile practices, they came up and they, they began to multiply. And he said, we punished them. We stamped it out. And we were able to stop it. But then it sprang up again. It sprang up again, not just in Judea, where it was uh, originally birthed, but it got 3,000 miles away, within 30 years, to the very center of the empire itself. It came to Rome. And he says, there were vast numbers of them. I don't know if you've ever, don't bother putting your hand up. But how many of you have heard people say, oh, no, no, Christianity, it's, it's just a delusion. You know, uh, it's legend, myth. Uh, Jesus, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Historically, he existed. We, we kind of get that. I mean, 2022, it's kind of like the day after he was, the years after he was born. It, it's, it's too big a thing. There's too much evidence. So, yeah, we know that Jesus was real. We know that he said these good things. But you know what? It becomes legendary, and then it becomes mythical, and then after a while, people have just kind of embellished and added stuff on, and do you know, you don't get that within 30 years. You don't get that when the eyewitnesses are still alive, and you don't get it spreading like this, and Tacitus, who's, <laughs> he's a bit of a, I don't know what to make of Tacitus. I mean, he's, he's quite a boss, but he is just very, very dismissive of the Christians. You know, this kind of pernicious sect, this disease, he calls them. But he acknowledges that they've got right through Rome, and now there are a vast number of them. And they confess their faith rather than deny it. And then they are torn apart by dogs. They're crucified. They are tied to posts and made as lamps for the garden parties of Nero as he's kind of doing his fancy dress. Hey, I'm a charioteer, woo! And Tacitus says, look, these guys, you almost felt sorry for them because they clearly, I mean, we think that they're guilty of crimes against humanity. They, they just don't believe or they don't follow the gods, but they're everywhere. And the fact that what Gamaliel says is, listen, if this is from God, you won't be able to stop it. When I read about the great fire of Rome, it makes me so 
so convinced, so encouraged in my faith. My foundation of faith isn't, well, you know, it works. My foundation of faith isn't, well, when I pray, I kind of feel God's presence. My foundation of faith isn't, oh, well, these people are really lovely and I kind of like them. Because those foundations, when they're assailed and when they're hit, you can have a deconstruction of your faith and you find that it was very, very shallow. But if you go down, 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 down deep, you find that the bedrock is actually a historical event. These people were convinced that Jesus had died from the, rose from the dead. And so with Jesus' words, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. They had a peace. You could put them in the Colosseum. You could put them in the circus. You could tie them to a stake. But they said, let's take courage. Jesus has overcome the world. Let's have strength because Jesus has overcome death. The worst that these people can do to me is that they can kill me. But I believe in a God who's conquered death. The greatest evidence for the Christian faith is the emergence of the early church. Historians can't explain it. How did a few people, I mean, it didn't happen with Judas, it didn't happen with Judas. You don't go to a kind of a Theudasian primary school or, or, or go to church in a kind of a Ju, you know, St. Judas. That's really wrong. How did this happen? There's no explanation for it, apart from what Gamaliel says. If this is God, you just won't be able to stop it. Sure. Throw them out of the synagogue. You won't be able to stop it. Throw them into the Colosseum. You won't be able to stop it. Crucify them. Burn them alive. You won't be able to stop it. It's just going to be one other guy. Because the thing that I think about is that, you know, the early believers, the, the disciples, they were convinced. So people like John. You know, the Apostle John, who was with Jesus for three years and he saw him risen from the dead. John, who was one of the ones that went into the tomb and saw the grave clothes supernaturally, miraculously, uh, just folded, uh, ungummed from a mummy. I mean, how does that even, how's that even possible? And he believes immediately. I can get it with those guys, but what about the next generation? This comes to our final guy. Because actually, the Apostle John, he has a disciple, a young boy, called Polycarp. And Polycarp, I know it sounds like a building material. Uh, <laughs> Got to catch them all. Polycarp is in Smyrna. This is uh, Smyrna up there. I say he's a young boy. Uh, he became old. <laughs> he slightly jumped ahead. But um, Polycarp is in Smyrna. Now, Smyrna is uh, it's here in modern-day Turkey. It's um, a city now called Izmir. But Smyrna was like a, a major, major ancient city. It's about 40 miles south of Ephesus. In fact, Smyrna is one of the original churches, the, one of the seven churches that Jesus writes to in Revelation. And when Jesus writes in Revelation to the church in Smyrna, he says, you're great, but you're going to go through some very, very hard times. But don't worry, I will be with you. And so John has this disciple called Polycarp. And this is literally, uh, it's 90 years later. So this is 155 AD. And Polycarp is the bishop of Smyrna. And by this time he's 86 years old. That's his minimum age. He might have been older, but we think he was 86 years old. 
And again, this wave of persecution broke out against the church. And so you've got people, they weren't the original disciples. This is now 130 years or 120 years after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So these guys, they weren't alive. And yet somehow they had been convinced that Jesus was alive. What happens with uh, Polycarp is that he is um, the kind of, because he's the big church figure, he's like the Rob Scott Cook. He's, he's the, the, the what, what was he, the bishop of the whole region, the whole kind of major church in Smyrna. They bring him into the circus and you can read about it. Again, it's, it's historical record. Um, and they are going to kill him. And the proconsul says to him, proconsul says, swear and I will set you at liberty. Reproach Christ. In fact, if you read the record, the guy's trying to talk him out of it. He's saying, you're an old man. In consideration of your age, just swear. In fact, he said, I want you to renounce the atheists. Because in those days, Christians were called atheists. Did you know that? The original Christians were called atheists. Why? Because they didn't believe in the gods. They just believed in one God. So they're like, yeah, we don't sacrifice. We don't do the idols. Oh, you bunch of atheists. That's odd. We'll put you to death. And so uh, this proconsul tries to reason with him. And then Polycarp says this incredible, beautiful thing. He says, 86 years have I served him and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Time to the stake. They set him on fire and then they skewer him with a spear. Uh, he which is the thing that actually kills him. The fire was just taking too long. But this gentle old man, AD 155, 1200 miles away from Rome, he has this incredible experience where he just, he experiences what Jesus experiences. What Jesus told him when Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace in this world. You will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And Polycarp is able to say, I have peace in Jesus. I've lived my life with a vision for something greater. I have been seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness all of my life. He says, I have a secret history. I've had the depth of relationship with God, with Jesus for 86 years. And he never did me any harm in all of that time. And he says, I, I have my life based on the foundation. And this is a storm right now, but I'm not getting off that foundation. My foundation is Jesus. He had courage. Why? Because Jesus has overcome the world. I want to pray uh, with us today. I want to pray for those of us that feel like life is hard. I want to pray for you, but I also want to just throw this thing out and, and say, don't ever be fooled. Being a Christian is going to be harder than living for yourself. Being a Christian isn't a kind of get out of jail free card and everything's going to be uh, sunshine and roses and your life will be wonderful and easy. Being a Christian is literally going to make your life harder. Because some of you are Christians, you will get disadvantaged in the workplace. You will be passed over for promotion. Because you're Christians, some of you will actually have to face really challenging, difficult choices 
about who you marry or whether you marry. Because you say, I want to live for Jesus and he's my prime um, authority. He's my prime priority in life. And that means I need to be with someone who shares that. And if I can't find someone that shares that, then I have to put Jesus first. I'm going to seek first his kingdom. For some of us, it actually means that there'll be uh, slander against us. There'll be people that hate us. Now, I have a very, very easy life. My life is just really straightforward and easy. But even I have people who hate me because I am a believer. I have people who slander me because I am a believer. You can talk to Kate about it. It's not Kate. Um, (laughs) But she knows. She knows that we have people, the two of us, we have people that say malicious things about us that uh, reject us, that disadvantage our children, the uh, things that they could have received, they're withheld from them. And so it takes courage to live for Jesus. But Jesus says, take heart, be strong, have courage, I've overcome the world. It's my job to give you peace. It's your job to live a life with courage. So that's how I wanted to end this series. I wanted to end it with a kind of, um, just a reminder that in this world we will have trouble. If you're having trouble, it's not to be, uh, uh, it's not to be unexpected. You should expect trouble. That's not to say you're going to have just a miserable, horrible life. It's going to be horrible histories like these guys all day long. That, that's not the case. But it's to say that when difficult times come, if they come, I can have peace in Jesus. And I can be courageous because he has overcome the world. Right now, some of us, we're looking at our finances. We're looking at, you know, can I afford a place to live? We're looking at jobs. We're looking at prospects. Some of us are worried about what's going to happen with the the whole climate crisis and and what could happen in Ukraine and does that spill out? Does it it spread like it did the last time and and does it go nuclear and and all these things? Jesus says, look, in the midst of all this, you can have peace in me, but just have courage, have confidence, take courage. I have overcome the world. So let's pray right now. I want to just invite you to close your eyes.